pleasing God more and more. Do you want to please God? In chapter 4, Paul is talking about how we can please God. This is point one on your outlines. Chapter 4 and verse 1. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as, in fact, you are, are living. You see, the way the Thessalonians are living is pleasing to God. And in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, Now, about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you. You yourselves have been taught by God how to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers, all of God's family throughout Macedonia. The way that the Thessalonians are loving is pleasing God. But look again at those passages, because there is more. In verse 1, they are living lives pleasing to God. But now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. And in verse 10, their loving towards each other is pleasing to God. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. God is pleased with how the Thessalonians are living and loving, but Paul wants them to do more. Not because Paul is a hard taskmaster who is never satisfied, but because it pleases God when we do more and more. Is your life pleasing to the Lord? If so, good on you. Now don't keep, now don't give up. Keep on, keep on doing more and more. You see, the reason to keep on living a godly life is not because of some sort of karma where the good things that we do somehow will come back to us. No, when we live a godly life, there may be no reward from men. We might even be despised for it. The reason to keep on living a godly life is because it pleases God. Is early church known for its love? Are you patient with each other? Are you kind to each other? Do you rejoice in the truth, always protect, always trust, always hope? Is that the way that you relate to each other in the church? Great. Do so more and more. The reason for loving more and more is not so that we will be loved in return. That may never happen. The reason to keep on loving more and more is because it pleases God. You know what else pleases God? In the next part of the passage, Paul addresses another two areas of life and how they can be used to please God. He talks about our private lives and about our public lives. But let's, let's first make sure that we understand sanctification. Because... In verse 3, it is God's will that you be sanctified. If it's God's will, if it pleases him, then we better understand what it is. Sanctification has to do with the idea of being set apart, of being made holy. Sanctification is about what has happened in the past, being made holy through the work of Jesus on the cross, and sanctification is about what is happening now, about being made holy through, through the work of the Spirit 
in our lives. Sanctification is about increasingly submitting areas of our lives to God's will. Paul now outlines two areas of our lives that should be sanctified, areas we can keep on improving to please God. Firstly, what happens in our private lives, our sex lives. And secondly, what happens in public, our work lives. While the Thessalonian church is living and loving in a way that pleases God, Paul knows that their private lives are important and their private lives need to be sanctified to please God. Point two on your outlines. Verses three and four. It's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable. Paul goes on then to make five points about sexual morality. Firstly, avoid sexual immorality. Learn to control your own body. You see, if pornography is a problem, then avoid it. Disconnect the internet. Walk away from the pornographic magazines. Don't rent the R-rated videos. And when even the PG programs get too hot, turn the damn TV off. That's why God made remote controls. It pleases God when we act differently to the world by avoiding temptation and learning to control our bodies. But that's easier said than done. It can be really hard and discouraging battling the same old sins. Sometimes it seems that we're never going to beat them. Sometimes it's like, God, I just can't do this by myself. Well, the great news is that he works with us. Look at Paul's prayer at the end of the letter. So over to Thessalonians 5, verses 23 and 4. This is what Paul prays for them. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. You see, we can't continue to grow in godliness by our own efforts. But he is faithful and he will see us through. And he's pleased to do it. The second point that Paul makes about our private lives is that they should be not like the pagans. Verse 5, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. Both Jews and Greeks became believers in Thessalonica. The Jewish converts would have been familiar with the strict moral code of the Old Testament law. However, the Jewish converts came from a different moral code one more promiscuous. Now, as Christian brothers, it's God's will that their sex lives be sanctified, to be different to the culture around them. Our own Australian culture does not expect people to control their bodies in a way that's holy and honourable. Extreme sex offences are not tolerated and they are punished under law. But 
unfaithfulness in marriage is excused, ungodly relationships are promoted with a Mardi Gras, public high school sex education instructs that sexual freedom is natural and the only concern is that it be safe sex. Our society accepts that people will not control their bodies in a way that is holy and honourable. But Christians should learn to lead a life that conforms to God's standards and not what is accepted by society. We're to be different to those who don't know God. We're to be sanctified because this pleases God. The third point Paul makes about private lives is that they should not take advantage of a brother. Verse 6. And in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. It's easy to see how public sexual immorality wrongs a brother or sister. We don't need to be reminded of the pain caused when sexual immorality is exposed. But even attitudes and facets fascinations entertained in private matter. What society would see as a private and personal issue is really a community issue with eternal consequences. How does private so-called soft pornography take advantage of my brother? How can the website that I log on to in the privacy of my own office or what I take home from the news agent and read in private, wrong my brother. Well, does watching pornography change the way that I relate to my wife? Do the romantic comedies I watch or the novels I read influence my expectations of my future wife or husband? Does lingering over a photograph of a woman change the way that I relate to people in my small group Bible study? Does it mean that I can't share openly and honestly with people and begin to withdraw from fellowship? If so, then I have wronged a brother or sister. And of course, from little things, big things grow. When King David by chance, saw a woman bathing, he could have looked the other way. But he had a second look. And then he sent someone to find out who she was. And he allowed his sin to grow until it matured into adultery. And murder was committed to conceal the truth. And there were consequences for King David and for his family. The fourth point that Paul raises regarding sexual immorality is punishment. Verse 6, the Lord will punish men for all such sins. And verse 8, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man but God. We might think our sin is private, that no one has been hurt, that no one has seen, but God sees and God will punish all such sins. When a person does not accept God's instruction to live a holy life, they reject God. When a person says to the creator of the universe, who made you boss over me, then there's trouble. Because they are like the pagans of verse 5 who do not know God. 
and those who do not know God face the coming wrath. This is seriously scary stuff. But what does that mean for the Christian? Christians make mistakes. We stumble, we fall into temptation. God only knows sometimes we jump into temptation. So will Christians face the coming wrath because of their sins? No, that can't be the case. This letter was written to Christians who had been saved from the coming wrath. In chapter 5 and verse 9, Paul writes, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation. And in chapter 1, verse 10, Jesus rescues us from the coming wrath. There may well be earthly consequences for sin that the Christian will not be saved from, just as there were for King David and his family. But there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel that Paul preached to the Thessalonians. Jesus rescues us from the coming wrath. If you are worried that the Lord will punish you because of sin, then the Holy Spirit has not been quenched. The Spirit is still there, prompting you to repentance. You have not rejected God, and Jesus will rescue us from the coming wrath. But when a man no longer worries about sin, then it's time to worry, because that man has rejected God. He has quenched the spirit, his conscience is seared, and he is like the heathen who face the coming wrath. The fifth point that Paul makes about why our private sex lives should be sanctified is that, in verse 3, it's God's will that you should be sanctified. And in verse 7, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. And this is the main point of what Paul is saying. It pleases God when our private lives, when our sexuality is holy and is sanctified and is different to the world. When we keep on trying to live holy lives, the God of the universe is smiling like a proud parent watching their infant at a kindergarten concert. And now to the second area that we can please God with. That is our public life. That's point three on your outlines. And this is a shorter point. God notices, notices us at work and he is pleased if we work well. Stay in chapter four, but skip down to verse 11. Verse 11 and 12. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. How can our public life be different to the world? By leading a quiet life, not brashly, disruptive or causing trouble, not drawing attention to ourselves, and by minding our own business, by doing the best that we can without worrying when others are slacking off and being responsible for our own actions. But why should we be different to others in public life? Verse 12, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Our different, sanctified, 
public lives should be attractive to those outside the church. And this will please God. God notices how we work and he is pleased to see us working well. People notice how we work. When I was farming, I had business dealings with a lot of people in their workplaces. Some of those people stood out as being different. The polite sales assistant who was genuinely interested in what I wanted to buy and not what he wanted to sell me. The shearer, who was not like the rest of the men in the shed, his language was different, his patience and humility out of place. The stock and station agent, who had earned a reputation for telling the truth. They were men that were widely respected. And I should not have been surprised when I saw the sales assistant walk into church, when I saw the shearer handing out Gideon Bibles to school kids, and when I heard the stock and station agent carefully explaining the gospel from the pulpit. I wonder if they were surprised to see me in church. I wonder if they guessed that I was a Christian by the way that I did my business with them. Our quiet lives and diligent work should make the gospel attractive. You see, to advance God's kingdom, you may not be called to missionary work overseas, but rather to faithful diligence in your regular job. And God is pleased by faithfulness in the workplace. The way we conduct ourselves in public, in the workplace, should please God. Paul had begun this chapter with instructions on how to live in order to please God. How can we please God? We can please God in everyday life, in love, in sex, in work. God is pleased when we grow more and more in love for each other. He is pleased when we are different, are different to the rest of the world in our private and public lives and we, when we are growing in our godliness. Would you pray with me? Father, holy God, thank you that you made us holy by the sacrifice of your son Jesus. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit will keep us holy and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Sanctify us through and through, Lord. And we are confident you will do this because you are faithful. Amen.